If you're a guest with us, we just began a series of sermons in the book of James. Uh, We overviewed the book last week, and last time we began to take a few moments just to consider the author, the audience, and the address uh, of this wisdom book. Sorry, I'm trying to figure out what to do with this kid's book that I brought up here right now that will be necessary later in the service. Uh, as we uh, considered the, the beginning of this book. But before we delve too deeply today, uh, it will help you to know that the many different sections of James 1, which often to many people seem random and disconnected, are actually one coherent treatment of the theme of temptation. And they introduce, in part, the, in brief summary, most of the themes that we are going to engage and interact with Throughout the rest of the book, that's what's doing it to me. That's what's pushing me around. I figured it out. I was like, where is this air coming from? So as we look at this chapter here and we read through it in just a few moments, sometimes we come to the book of James, especially James chapter 1, and we think of it a little bit like Proverbs. There's something about this and something about this and something about this, and now we're back to the original topic, and then we're over here again. But James 1 is actually driving at the theme of temptation in its entirety. And we'll see that over the next few weeks as we look at verses 2 through 12, how they assert the importance of the fortitude in temptation, which actually produces completeness in our lives. And they call believers to call out to God in trials, knowing that God will grant wisdom to us, a wisdom that the riches of the rich does not provide, and it is a wisdom that is still available to the poor. But verses 13 through 18 issue a warning to us about human desire, Desires that lure people away from relying on God's providence, especially in trials. Trials that cause us to think that God is against us and that he is tempting us. But what James wants us to remember is that God only gives good gifts to his children. And then in verses 19 through 27, they introduce these very practical implications of trusting God in trials. We're to be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to anger because the temptation is to be quick-tempered during these times and to speak out of turn. But James wants us to to realize that in those moments when we are tempted most, we're to trust God in trials because those trials are actually the very things that God is using to make us whole and round us out and make us complete. So we'll see as we read through James that there's actually a method to his madness. And what we'll do to begin to kind of lay the land and to see that theme, we're going to read the entirety of James chapter 1 today. I'm going to begin reading in James 1, verse 1. James writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he speaks to us with the same authority as if Jesus Christ himself here speaking to us today. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, To the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. 
For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. And let the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows, in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and how it teaches us as we have learned throughout the entirety of the service to lament, to lament grievous things and to recognize that there are some providences in our lives that are difficult. Father, we thank you that we have learned through this service as our brother Stephen exhorted us and reminded us earlier to not only lament, but to be patient in our suffering and to be thankful as the creed taught us when things go well in our lives, reminding ourselves that there is nothing that happens in our lives, whether we perceive it to be good or bad, that happens apart from your sovereign providential will, including us turning our attention to your word now. So, Father, we pray as we turn our attention to your word that you would cause us to focus, that you would help us to see the beauty of the gospel in your word, that you would give us ears to hear the beauty of the gospel, not only as it has been read, but, Father, as we study it together, that you would help us to have eyes to see your mercy toward us in Christ. And, Father, we pray that you would help us when we are tempted to despise you in the midst of trials and sufferings and sorrows in our lives and father we pray that you would help us to see that sometimes we despise you in most subtle ways 
ways that we do not think to be despising you. We pray, Father, that you would help us to be people who give thanks and trust that your will is better for our life than our plan. And we ask all of this in the name of our sovereign triune God who has revealed himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. When we go through a crisis, it shows us exactly and precisely what kind of person we actually are. In times when life is pushing the ordinary tenor of its way, we all succeed in making a fair show of life. It is so easy to live an artificial and a superficial life that persuades us and those around us that we really are what we want to believe that we would like to be. But in a time of trial, in the midst of crisis in our lives, the natural, the real, and the true finally come into view. We see it in our own lives, and we learned it throughout church history. Just ask John Wesley. Prior to his conversion, in one sense, he knew all about religion. But while crossing the Atlantic in an, an, a terrible storm, which seemed to be leading to nothing but certain death, he felt that he had nothing at all. He himself was afraid to die, and he was afraid of everything that was taking place around him. And what struck him most was the contrast presented by the Moravian brethren who were on the exact same ship. They were, in comparison with Wesley, ignorant men, but their religion meant something real to them, and it was vital to them in the midst of the storm and gave them peace and calmness, even when face-to-face with what they believed to be certain death. Wesley's religion appeared to be excellent. It had everything that we would say would adorn true religion. He gave away all of his goods. He would go and he would preach in the prisons. He had actually crossed the Atlantic to preach to the pagans in Georgia. He was a man of immense knowledge of all things religious. And yet the trial revealed to him and everyone around him the nature of his religion when it was tested, that it was worthless. Would you say that of your Christianity today, that it's worthless? It's useful to you when things are going well and in pleasure. But it is useless for you when things are not going well and you're in pain. James begins his letter with the theme of testing faith. That we might be, as he says, perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And he tells us that the pathway of testing are life-giving trials which produce endurance and can make us whole. Notice first, life-giving trials reveal what we need. Endurance. Look with me again in verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The all-too-dedicated mother, the seven-day-a-week pastor, the workaholic businessman can all justify their lifestyle. My family needs me. My church needs me. My business needs me. But what happens at the end of all of this selfless wear and tear when the needs of the family and of the church and of the business remain unaltered? 
These are not James's illustrations, but I do not think that James would disapprove of these illustrations because the point of life-giving trials is that they would make us whole. Verse 4, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In fact, James tells us that they're not only to make us perfect and complete, but they actually produce in us a response from us that is counterintuitive. Verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers. Though these are familiar verses to most people in this room, they sound incredibly crazy to us when we read them out loud. But to James, this verse was the key to the meaning of all of the life-giving trials. They are occasions for joy, no matter what form they may take. Verse 2, when you meet trials of various kinds. What a complete picture of life. Economic hardship or marital strife. Singleness and loneliness or conflict at work. Relational frustration with our friends or being disparaged by a neighbor or colleague. It all appears so random to us. And if we're honest, it feels so random to us. Why is it happening this way? Why this providence? Why this trial? And yet they are, all of them, James tells us, occasions for joy. Continuing in humble fashion, James does not apply a heavy apostolic hand looking out on weak people and saying, get your act together. In fact, he says, as a humble servant, verse 1, as he addresses them, verse 2, as his brothers before issuing the first imperative of this book. Count it all joy. The testing of faith and life-giving trials are occasions for intense joy for James. Verse 2, they are occasions for all joy in any of the various kinds of situations that we might find ourselves in, no matter how difficult we might perceive them to be or they actually are. But the joy does not resist resist. Rest in the trials themselves. James is not saying, as Christians, you just should not mind a little bit of suffering in your life. You should just learn to deal with it and grin and bear it. Rather, James is saying that we can count it all joy as we are tested for genuineness in our lives because the experience of having our faith put to the test proves our belief to be a conviction when the day comes. And it will. If you've lived long enough, you know this to be true. When the circumstances of life mock our creed and the cruelty of life denies God's fatherly, tenderly care for us. The question for us then is, will you count it all joy? The question is not when things are well and God has given you what you want and providence is swell. Can you count it all joy? But when life mocks you and providence chastises you. And God seems to not be doing what you think he should. Will you count it all joy then? This, James tells us, produces consistency in us. Verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Not a Nietzschean aphorism, what doesn't kill you only makes you stronger. But the experience of having our faith tested produces an un wavering endurance and fortitude it actually proves what we believe it shows the bankruptcy at different areas of our faith it helps us see where we need to grow and how we need to lean on the body of christ to carry us through this life it is a truth that is actually not novel to james as one preacher noted it is just a good observation of life just like when a young couple 
who after their first excitement and attraction begin to declare to all of the world that they are a match made in heaven for one another for all of eternity until the counter-attraction of another person presents a problem. Or a growing experience in individual likes and dislikes seem to take them down different paths. Or an antagonistic reaction from family members of the opposing party tests the relationship. Will you be unwavering then? As testings are endured, the relationship becomes durable. And what began as a tentative belief ends in a fixed and unchangeable constancy of life where we learn how to be more loyal and less erratic in our conduct. That's true in relationships. That's true in friendships. How many of us are long for loyalty and refuse to give it to other people whenever a trial comes into our friendship? So James says, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. One of the things we saw this past week, if you're with us in verse by verse, is that this idea of perfection really confuses us. We think that the scripture is calling us to a standard that we cannot attain. But actually, underneath the English word for us is this sense of wholeness, this sense of integrity. When our life when it's faced with a variety of different trials, actually proves to be one that is integrated and whole, where we're not something differently in private than we are in public. That the private us and the public us, the non-suffering us and the suffering us are the same kind of person in all circumstances, then we will finally be a perfect and complete person. Not somebody who is back and forth, wavering, tossed to and fro, when we are actually people of integrity and whole in this life. James tells us that life-giving trials are God's designed way to move us forward into maturity, whether they come through circumstances or people in our lives. And the occasion of the trial is a matter of rejoicing because even in the darkest hour, God is still in control and his divine purpose will prevail. So James goes into a to discuss all sorts of trials, from partiality to uncouth speech to economic injustice to physical sickness. James is dealing with all of these things throughout the entirety of his letter because it is important to see that the trials of various kinds are referring to all the types of difficulties that Christians face in a falling world. One of the things that is different about James, though it begins very similarly to 1 Peter, is that James does not have only in mind the persecution and alienation that people are experiencing that 1 Peter did. James is wanting us to see that all of us are experiencing various difficult trials in our lives. They hit us at various different points of our lives. And some of them are incredibly severe, and we would all recognize them to be severe. And some of them, for us personally, are very severe. And perhaps other people might not think them to be severe, but that does not make them any less real to us. Friends, your suffering may not be the same as someone else's, but that doesn't make it any less real or any less important as God shapes you and molds you and forms you into the person that you would never be apart from hardship in your life. And though trials can cause us great anxiety, and they often do, in our hearts as believers and in our heads as we begin to play out the mental tapes, this understandable restlessness can be calmed by a reassuring knowledge that God is using the trials to refine our Christian faith 
and to produce something in us, steadfastness. Notice what he says, verse 3. For you know, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. You know it, but you don't believe it when it's happening to you. You know it and believe it when it's happening to other people. You know it and believe it when you read about it in books. You know it and believe it when you're singing about it, but not when you're experiencing it in your life. You know what you fail to believe. You know that God is for you when all of life collapses around you. You know that Jesus Christ has promised that he will always be with you when life feels like sinking sand, but you fail to believe that in the trial. So, James says, verse 4, let steadfastness have its full effect. Let it bring you to the end of yourself. Let it bring you to the end of all of your resolve. Let it bring you to the end of all of your trying. Let it have its full effect, bottoming you out in absolutely every single way. And then consider it absolute joy as God finally puts you in a position where you are able to trust him as the faithful God that he is. And you will experience growth in Christian character, especially a steadfastness that won't quit or cancel God every time something or someone is hard or offends you. Brothers and sisters, James knows what is true of all of us, that we are fickle people in trial. It is easy to love God when things are going well, and it is so much more difficult when it is not. The purpose of life-giving trials is divinely orchestrated character formation. One of our elders, I was talking with them on the way to elders meeting the other night, and he was talking about the difficult drive from his home to elders meeting, how frustrating it was. And I said, yeah, it's the Lord teaching you patience. And he said, no, it wasn't the Lord teaching me patience. It was the Lord showing me that I didn't have any. Brothers and sisters, that is exactly what God is doing, divinely orchestrated character formation in our lives, that you may be perfect and complete, that you might be whole, and a person of integrity, lacking nothing. Because the pathway of testing is life-giving trials which produce endurance and can make us whole. Notice second, life-giving trials reveal what we lack, wisdom. Look with me again in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. James shifts to a discussion on wisdom in verse 5 because wisdom is needed to view life-giving trials from God's perspective. They reveal what we need, endurance, steadfastness, and they reveal what we lack, wisdom. So we need the wisdom to be able to see them from God's perspective. Only the wise person, the truly wise person, will be able to see life as God has pictured it through James's writing in verses 2 through 4 and be able to make decisions that shape our lives along God's pathway so as to enjoy the progress toward maturity which God has promised, which is very hard to do when we're suffering. So the person who lacks wisdom on how to navigate the complex trials of life is to ask, they are to ask the generous God, whom James says will give to all without reproach. If you lack wisdom, verse 5, let him ask who gives generously to all, and it will be given to him. 
where we are fickle, tossed to and fro, back and forth, giving and then rescinding what we give, like the waves of the sea that is driven and tossed back and forth by the wind, God is constant, and he shows unwavering generosity to all who trust in him. And he does it without reproach. For anyone, and probably the majority of people in this room, who have suffered under the gifts that others have given us, whether it's a parent or a sibling or a superior or a spouse, that was given resentfully and with strings attached, James delivers us good news. That our Heavenly Father does not give gifts like that. He does not give gifts with strings attached. He does not give gifts in ways where he's resentful, reminding us of all of the things that we do wrong. He does not give gifts where he's trying to shame us. He gives good gifts. He is transparent. He gives without reservation. He gives without hesitation. He gives kindly and responsively because he loves us. And he gives more willingly than we are willing to receive. So kind that James says plainly, verse 5, that wisdom will be given to all who ask, just like that. But how can James say that when that seems to be the exact opposite of our experience? How many of us have asked? And yet we have seemed or perceived to think that we have not been answered by God. James, as he's teaching us about wisdom, has a doctrine of God that actually upholds what he is presenting to us, where it is possible for him to teach us to make large request because God is capable of fulfilling large promises in his name and he is able to affirm that those promises will be honored he teaches us notice here verse 5 that God's nature is one to give God who gives generously to all without reproach he is more willing to give than we are to receive and he does it indiscriminately he gives to all without reproach as Alec Matera said this is how the giving God gives with a selfless, total concern for us, and with an exclusive preoccupation as if he had nothing else to do but to give and to give and to give and to give again. And all of his generous, loving, giving, forbearing, the nature of God is revealed to us, opening before us this beautiful prospect of the possibility in prayer which is true in Scripture. We are to come and we are to ask and we are to pray bold prayers, prayers that are not too big for God to answer. But there is also something that we are to take into account. We are to consider why, after making this astonishing claim in verse 5, James actually writes what he does in verses 6 through 8. Verse 5, hold for us this unquestioned sincerity of God who desires our progress to maturity through these life-giving trials, who, as far as he concerned, will not withhold from us the wisdom we need to navigate them rightly, but in verses 6 through 8, they raise the question of our sincerity. Do we doubt God? Are we wholeheartedly committed to his way of seeing things and his ambitions for our future, especially when what he sees for our future and his ambitions for our life are different than our own? Or in those moments, are we keeping the door open for another possibility than what God has laid out for us in our lives? God's evaluation of our character in those moments is clear in James' writing. If that's how we are with God, we want what God would give us that we like, but we don't want what God would give us when we don't like it, his evaluation is very clear, verse 8. 
We are double-minded, unstable in all of our ways. We are literally two-souled. This is not quite the same thing as saying there is a duplicitous two-faced person. We are a divided person. We are of two minds at the same time. We're literally looking in two directions at the exact same time. Jesus said it like this in the Sermon on the Mount. This is what the whole wholesome life of integrity should look like. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and he will despise the other. The result is that person is unstable in all of his ways because there is this inner division resulting in a deficiency of personal character when they can't reconcile what is taking place. Soul allegiance to God in the place of prayer, not simply in the public place of worship in the world, will put us in a position to emerge with wisdom, James tells us, that actually unifies the person and puts them on a steady course through the entire storm of life. Faith in prayer, then, is our absolute confidence in God that he will give us what we ask. But doubting is our inner uncertainty about whether or not he is trustworthy. Friends, if you can trust God with your souls, why are you so reticent to trust him with the providences of your life? You trust him with your eternity, but you fail to trust him with your career. You trust him with his work on the cross, but you fail to trust him with what he's doing through difficult providences and relationships and family and friends. James is telling us that that person is unstable in all of their ways. I like this eternal saving providence. I don't like this shaping providence on earth. Double-minded, unstable. But James's straightforward request is a reminder to us that God's clearly revealed will for us is that we would be wise, a people where the Proverbs actually teach us to go out and to ask for wisdom. We are to be the type of people who are characterized by wisdom and integrity in our lives. Proverbs chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. Wisdom has built her house. She has shewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. Friends, we need wisdom to view life-giving trials rightly. But James offers one qualification that that prayer must be offered, verse 6, in faith, without doubting. Because the doubting person is double-minded and is not able to receive from the Lord. The pathway of testing is life-giving trials which produce endurance and can make us whole as they reveal what we need, endurance, and what we lack, wisdom. Notice third, life-giving trials reveal what we are, temporary. Look at verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. When we come to verses 9 through 11 with the unexpected life uh, to the poor and rich, 
if we're honest, once again, we experience that same sense of bewilderment that we saw in verses 2 through 4, which overtake us as we read James. How is it possible for James to write this? That the lowly brother is to exult in his exaltation, and the rich brother is to exult in humiliation, just like we are to ask ourselves, how is it possible that I am to consider trials joy? Since verse 2, he's been telling us that these various kinds of trials hit us in all of these different areas in our lives. And now what he does is he applies it and he helps us see that there are two types of trials that we often overlook and don't realize what God is doing. He is testing us in poverty and he is testing us in riches. Though I am sure the person stricken by poverty would like to give a shot at the trial of the riches. James tells us that the poor and the rich have something in common. That they both have to learn the path of wisdom. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. Whether rich or poor, you will pass away. Whether you have nothing to lean on in this life or everything to lean on in this life, you will pass away. Absolutely everybody is temporary. Nobody has the luxury of being able to control all of life's circumstances, whether they are rich or poor. Both the rich and poor must see their situation, not through the eyes of the world, but in light of a wisdom that is sought from by God. So he gives us an illustration. For the sun rises with its scorching heat, and it withers the grass. Its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. In this life, it seems as he has everything. He can buy what he wants and goes, go where he wants and do what he wants with whoever he wants. But James is telling us he fails to see that it is all fleeting and none of it provides stability in this life. Friend, what are you relying on? What are you trusting in? And for those of us who perhaps might consider ourselves to be the people here today who do not have as much means as everybody else, what is it that you are striving after, thinking that if I finally have this, I will have stability and constancy in my life? James wants us to see that whether we have it or long for it, all of us have something in common. We are all coming to a place, maybe sooner than we think, where we will see that everything in this life is passing away, that there is nothing in this life that is constant or eternal, that the only thing that we can trust in in this life is the good, merciful sovereignty and providence of our God in all of life's circumstances, that we can count them all joy. And the astonishing reality in James is that people brought low by financial poverty can actually live lives that are pleasing to God just as pleasing as the rich. James calls on the lowly and the poor to find a divine perspective in their trial. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. They too are brothers. And the rich person, however, is to see their ter temporary status from God's perspective. Like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. Scripture is clear that the problems of the rich are just as uh, bad as the problems of the poor. Sometimes they are worse because they cause us to lean on things that are not eternal. The pathway of testing is life-giving trials which produce endurance that can make us whole as they reveal what we need, endurance, and reveal what we lack, wisdom, and reveal what we are, temporary. Notice fourth, life-giving trials reveal what we must believe, God's promise. Look with me in verse 12. 
I had not noticed something until this morning. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast. I want you to underline that or circle it if you're that type of person. Under trial. I want you to underline or circle trial. For when he has stood the test, I want you to underline or circle trial. He will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Now look over to verse 2 with me. Think of those three things that we just underlined or circled. Steadfast trial test. Count it all joy, my brothers. When you meet trials, I want you to underline or circle that, of various kinds. For you knew that the testing, underline or circle that, of your faith, produces steadfastness. I want you to underline or circle that. From the beginning to the end of the passage, James has one goal, to drive us to trust in the promises of God and to reveal for us what we need to believe in. We do not need to trust in the uncertainty of riches. We need to not evaluate God's love or favor for us based on the circumstances around us. We do not need to be people who evaluate how much God cares for us by how quickly he does or perhaps we might think does not answer our prayers. In all of those circumstances, we are either people who are seeing things wrongly in the trials of life or seeing things wrongly in the way that we pray or seeing things wrongly in the way that we have material abundance or not. In all of these, we need to be driven to the point where we see that the person who is blessed is the one who remains steadfast. The blessed life is one that is filled with trials that cause us to stop relying on this world. They actually dislodge us from a love affair with this world, and they point us forward. James, again, is not novel. He's just remembering what his brother said. Matthew chapter 5, verse 2. And Jesus opened his mouth and he taught them, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The blessed life is the exact opposite of what we think it to be, and the world tells us, specifically America tells us that it is. The blessed life is filled with trials, husbands and wives. The blessed path to a faithful marriage is one that is filled with trials that cause you to stop trying to make your marriage perfect and rely on God in the midst of it. Single people, the blessed path is one that trusts God in the midst of the singleness and know that there is good for you in the midst of what feels like isolation. For those of us who are experiencing pain and are coping with life's sorrows with alcohol and with drugs, 
The blessed life is one that stops trusting in alcohol or drugs or other substances to comfort us and trust in God in the midst of the sorrows of this life realizing that he is merciful and gracious, teaching us to trust in him in all things. The blessed life is one where trials actually bring us to the absolute end of ourselves so that we might finally pray and finally see and finally look forward and finally sing with resolve, knowing that whate'er my God ordains is right. He never will deceive me. He leads me by the proper path. I know he will not leave me. The blessed life is one that remains steadfast, that endures. The reason that we don't know more of the blessing is that we don't endure. The reason we don't know more of the mercy is because we quit. The reason we don't know more of God's kindness to us is because we are tired of the pain and we look for comfort elsewhere. This doesn't work. Give me something that will. And maybe we know the right answers enough to know that we can't say we forsake the Bible and we give up our membership at the church and Christianity's broken, doesn't work. So we just look for it in more subtle ways. And we use all of life's narcotics pain, hoping that something else will give us what we feel that we lack. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Why is that blessed? For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. It's a famous scene in the Lord of the Rings where Galadriel is forced to make a decision. Galadriel is an elf, wizardress, and she has Frodo before her, and all the power of all of the world is right in front of her. It's within her grasp. It's within her reach. All she has to do is reach out and take the ring. She withstands the test. And doesn't reach out for everything that she has desired in this life. That she would be seen as most beautiful and most powerful and all glorious. And she says, I've withstood the test and I will diminish. Friends, the reason we don't know more of the blessing and haven't learned how to diminish in this life. The reason we keep asserting ourselves and draw attention to ourselves. Look at me. I matter. My life counts. Because we have not learned how to step back and to see in the trials that what God is doing is making small and himself great so that we might know the goodness of our Savior who has so condescended to love us. For when he has stood the test, he will receive, we will receive something greater than this world has to offer, greater than all you can think or imagine. And if you're like me and you're pretty imaginative, you can think of a lot and imagine a lot. You will receive the crown of life. Life, not death. Hope, not frustration. Peace, not irritation. We will receive the crown of life on the other side of the trial, not in the absence of the trial. That we will receive the crown of life on the other side of the pain. We so often have it backwards. We want to go around the trial. We want to go underneath the trial. We want to try to jump over the trial. But what we see constantly in the Bible is we have to walk right through the trial. I'll walk through the valley of the shadow of death. He will not leave me. He guides me by the proper paths which God has promised to those who love him. Friends, what has he promised to those who love him? Life. Life that comes by trusting in his son. Believer here today, 
the gospel for us is one of life, where we look for it not only for the day to come, but life to be experienced now, where we can know the riches of the full assurance that is ours in Christ, because God on high, who came down low, has forgiven sinners like you and me, so that we might be transferred out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved Son, so that we might rejoice now and for all of eternity that we are known by God, known by name, not lost in a sea of faces. He has been merciful and has not treated us as our sins deserve. He has been patient and not unkind to us. He has bestowed on us the great riches of the gospel. He has freed us from all of the shackles of sin so that we might have confident assurance that he loves us. And he tells us and promises us that when we confess those sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins. And we can consider it all joy in all of life's circumstances. An unbeliever, we are here to tell you that there's a promise for you. A promise for you if you will turn away from your sin. The book of James, like the rest of the Bible, confronts you with who you are. You are a sinner. You have been separated from God. Your sin will destroy your life and it will take you places that you would never go in your right mind. Every believer in this room knows that to be true. And we are here to tell you that it will lead you down paths that you never thought that you would walk. That you would do things that you never thought that you would do. That you would say things that you did not know were in you to say. That you will feel things and rage and hate that you did not know that you could possibly feel. And it will corrupt every area of your life. And it will damn you for all of eternity. Unless you repent of your sins and come to Christ. Turn away from your sins and come to Christ. That you might be able to count it all joy. That God will treat you mercifully when you remain steadfast in his son under trial. And give you on that day crown of everlasting life for all who have believed in him and love him. Believer, do you love him? I know you know the answer is to say yes, but do your words communicate that you love him? Do your actions communicate that you love him? Does your financial contribution to the church communicate that you love him? Do your prayers for the other people at this church communicate that you love him? Does the way that you live with people who are hard to reach and difficult to live with communicate that you love him? Does the way that you're preparing to approach that table in a moment communicate that you love him? Does the way that you carry out your membership covenant here at this church communicate that you love him? Would the unbelieving world around you look at the way that you live your life and organize things in your life from your recreation and free time to all of the other things that you do, and say, that communicates to me somebody who loves God more than this life. Or would they and others in this room be confused by what they see and hear? An unbeliever, you might fool us and say that you love him and sing that you love him and pray that you love him and read that you love him and say all the right answers to let us know that you love him. But here's how... We will know that you love him. James is very clear on this. So is the rest of the Bible. You will obey God and keep his commandments. You will not simply say that you love him, but you will live a life that communicates that you love him. At the very beginning of his book, James starts with this theme of testing. 
because he's trying to bring us to the end of our self-reliance. James knows what kind of people we are. And the beauty of the Bible is that that hasn't changed in nearly 2,000 years. People in the first century are struggling with the same thing you are struggling now. We're trying to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps and justify themselves before God and say, here's why I'm acceptable. And James humbles absolutely everyone. And the beauty of the gospel is that everybody stands there on the exact same footing, rich or poor, those in affliction and those not, all come to the same place, the foot of the cross, to receive God's mercy. Why do we test something? To find out what it really is. Well, when we find out what it really is, we are able to act honestly for the first time. And perhaps you're here, and for the first time you've seen clearly what you are. A person who has either said that you repent and believe the gospel, but does not live like it. You will go to hell if you do not trust in Christ. Believe in Christ. Come to Christ. Or a person who knows that you have not trusted Christ. You will go to hell if you do not trust in Christ. Come to Christ. Or a believer struggling on the journey saying, I trust the Christ, and I need help. Help my unbelief. I do not want to be a two-souled, double-minded, unstable person. Fix my eyes on the Christ that I might receive the crown of life through all of life's trials and sorrows. And according to James, how does God do that? Through life's trials. And one of the ways that we can do that is sometimes by reading children's books to see what those trials are. This book, The Poison Cup by R.C. Sproul, tells the story of a young little girl. And I'm just going to read two small sections for you. A young little girl named Ella who got sick, and her grandfather came over. And she asked her grandfather, why is my medicine so yucky if it's going to make me well? Grandpa looked thoughtfully. That's a very good question, Ella. He said, some things that look or taste or smell wonderful are really awful. But sometimes things that seem terrible are actually very good. I even remember a story in which both of these strange things were true at the exact same time. And then he tells their story of a prince who came to drain the poison cup so that his people didn't have to die. Either they would die or he would die. Either they would drink the cup or he would drink the cup. And he drank it all the way, all of the cup. And then at the end of the story, clearly communicating to her, what Christ has done for us. Grandpa leaned over to Ella and said, Ella, I want you to remember that when we get sick, because it is because of our sinfulness. That's why the medicine that makes our bodies well usually looks and tastes bad. But the prince had to drink something far more terrible so that his pipe people might be healed from the results of their own disobedience. Each time you have to take the bitter medicine, I want you to remember the story of the prince's poison cup. Friend, each time you take the bitter medicine of life's providences, remember that it is pointing you, one, to the end of yourself, and two, to the cup that the Savior has drained for you. There is nothing that you experience in this life that is more severe than what he has. There is no sorrow that you have ever had that has been greater than his. And he bore it all so that you might know peace because the pathway of testing is life-giving trials which produce endurance and can make us whole. Life-giving trials humble us, and they help us to see that at the foot of the cross, we're all at, at the very same place, rich and poor alike, and no place does that better than the Lord's table. The beauty of the Lord's table, as we think of these elements this morning, is that the Savior, 
who condescended from heaven on high, came down and he, he literally broke his body for you and for me. And these elements visibly display for us the gospel as you come and you tear off a piece of the bread, just like his flesh was torn for you and for me. His body was broken and bruised after he had been alienated and mocked. And not only was his body broken, his blood was also shed, the scripture tells us. It was poured out for you and for me, reminding us of the great cost that the Savior went to to save us and to procure for us something more stable than the fleeting riches of this life or circumstances that seem to make us happy. The crown of everlasting life. Every time we come to this table and proclaim the gospel, we're reminding ourselves of what Jesus has done for us. And we are reminding ourselves of what Jesus has done for us. The reason that we all come down to the same place and break of the bread and take from the elements and go back to the seat and sing together during that so that none of us thinks too individualistically about the sacrament. It's not a time for you to only think of yourself and how bad you are. It is a time for you to remember that not only has God done something for you that you could never do for yourself, God has placed you among a people that you do not belong. He has given you his friends as your own so that you might not live lonely in this world, even when all things in this life are far more difficult than you ever anticipated them to be. Friends, the Lord's Supper is a time for grieving. But more than that, it is a time for rejoicing where we sing and worship and remind ourselves that a day is coming when we're the sorrows of this life that have been teaching us and preparing us for the next life come to an end. And on that day, we have everlasting joy and peace for all of eternity. Friends, today, come to the table and rejoice. Your sins have been forgiven. They have been blotted out by the blood of the Lamb. You will rejoice with God's people forever. You will meet people that you never met in this life, and you will have something in common with rich and poor alike. You have been saved by Jesus Christ, the mighty friend of sinners. He loves white people and black people, American people and Chinese people. He loves all kind of people, and he draws them all to himself, and he makes them one in Christ so that under the banner of the gospel, they would be able to sing, and they would be able to say, Glory to the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world for you and for me. In just a moment, there will be two lines. And when you're online, I want you to do something that perhaps you've never done for today. I want you to pray for the person in front of you. If you don't know their name, I don't care. Pray for the person in front of you. I want you to pray and ask that the Lord would bless them and that he would comfort them. And perhaps that he might give you the courage to go and to ask them, how can you be a part of God comforting them? And if you're at the back of the line, you pray for the front and front, you pray for the back. That's why you walk around and go down the line together. So you'll come and you'll go out to the side and down and around. I'm going to ask the people who are serving the elements to go ahead and come as I pray. We're going to ask you to come today. But we're inviting a a specific type of person to come. A person who has repented of their sins and has trusted in Jesus Christ. A person who has repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus Christ and has been baptized and is a member of a church that preaches the same gospel that you have heard preached here today. So if you are not a Christian, we are telling you the most godly thing that you can do today is to stay in your seat. 
And if you are somebody who has not been baptized or you're not a member of a church that preaches the same gospel, the most godly thing that you can do is stay in your seat today. But we invite you to either repent and believe or join a fellowship, this fellowship perhaps, so that you might be able to know that one of God's kindnesses to you is fellowship in the context of the church. Brothers and sisters, I'm going to pray. You're going to come, you're going to break off a piece, and we're going to sing together. Please stand. Father, we thank you for your mercies towards us in Christ. They are indeed new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And we thank you, Father, for the firm foundation that is ours in Christ. You have not treated us as our sins deserve. We pray, Father, that you would help us even now as we sing and as we celebrate around this table to remember the great cost that you, that you gave for us and for our salvation. Father, we thank you for these visible reminders to us of what Jesus Christ did when his body was broken and his blood was shed. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Two quick.